Chapter 1, Part 1 of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 1, The Lamp of Sacrifice, Part 1. 1. Architecture is the art which so disposes and adorns the edifices raised by man for whatsoever uses, that the sight of them contributes to his mental health, power, and pleasure. It is very necessary, in the outset of all inquiry, to distinguish carefully between architecture and building. To build, literally to confirm, is by common understanding to put together and adjust the several pieces of any edifice or receptacle of a considerable size. Thus we have church-building, house-building, ship-building, and coach-building. That one edifice stands, another floats, and another is suspended on iron springs, makes no difference in the nature of the art, if so it may be called, of building or edification. The persons who profess that art are severally builders, ecclesiastical, naval, or of whatever other name their work may justify. But building does not become architecture merely by the stability of what it erects, and it is no more architecture which raises a church, or which fits it to receive and contain with comfort a required number of persons occupied in certain religious offices, than it is architecture which makes a carriage commodious or a ship swift. I do not, of course, mean that the word is not often, or even may not be legitimately, applied in such a sense, as we speak of naval architecture. But in that sense, architecture ceases to be one of the fine arts, and it is therefore better not to run the risk, by loose nomenclature, of the confusion which would arise, and has often arisen, from extending principles which belong altogether to building into the sphere of architecture proper. Let us therefore at once confine the name to that art which, taking up and admitting as conditions of its working the necessities and common uses of the building, impresses on its form certain characters venerable or beautiful but otherwise unnecessary thus i suppose no one would call the laws architectural which determine the height of a breastwork or the position of a bastion but if to the stone facing of that bastion be added an unnecessary feature as a cable moulding that is architecture it would be similarly unreasonable to call battlements or machicolations architectural features so long as they consist only of an advanced gallery supported on projecting masses, with open intervals beneath for offence. But if these projecting masses be carved beneath into rounded courses, which are useless, and if the headings of the intervals be arched and trefoiled, which is useless, that is architecture. It may not be always easy to draw the line so sharply and simply, because there are few buildings which have not some pretense or colour of being architectural, neither can there be any architecture which is not based on building nor any good architecture which is not based on good building but it is perfectly easy and very necessary to keep the ideas distinct and to understand fully that architecture concerns itself only with those characters of an edifice which are above and beyond its common use i say common because a building raised to the honour of god or in memory of men has surely a use to which its architectural adornment fits it, but not a use which limits, by any inevitable necessities, 
its plans or details. 2. Architecture proper, then, naturally arranges itself under five heads. Devotional, including all buildings raised for God's service or honor. Memorial, including both monuments and tombs. Civil, including every edifice raised by nations or societies for purposes of common business or pleasure. Military, including all private and public architecture of defense. Domestic, including every rank and kind of dwelling place. Now of the principles which I would endeavor to develop, while all must be, as I have said, applicable to every stage and style of the art, some, and especially those which are exciting rather than directing, have necessarily fuller reference to one kind of building than another. And among these I would place first that spirit which, having influence in all, has nevertheless such a special reference to devotional and memorial architecture. The spirit which offers, for such work, precious things simply because they are precious, not as being necessary to the building, but as an offering, surrendering, and sacrifice of what is to ourselves desirable. It seems to me not only that this feeling is in most cases wholly wanting in those who forward the devotional buildings of the present day, but that it would even be regarded as an ignorant, dangerous, or perhaps criminal principle by many among us. I have not space to enter into dispute of all the various objections which may be urged against it. There are many and spacious. But I may perhaps ask the reader's patience, while I set down those simple reasons which cause me to believe it a good and just feeling, and as well pleasing to God and honourable in men, as it is beyond all dispute necessary to the production of any great work in the kind with which we are at present concerned. 3. Now first, to define this lamp or spirit of sacrifice clearly, I have said that it prompts us to the offering of precious things merely because they are precious, not because they are useful or necessary. It is a spirit, for instance, which of two marbles equally beautiful, applicable and durable, would choose the more costly because it was so, and of two kinds of decoration, equally effective, would choose the more elaborate because it was so, in order that it might in the same compass present more cost and more thought. It is therefore most unreasoning and enthusiastic, and perhaps best negatively defined, as the opposite of the prevalent feeling of modern times, which desires to produce the largest results at the least cost. Of this feeling, then, there are two distinct forms. The first, the wish to exercise self-denial for the sake of self-discipline merely, a wish acted upon in the abandonment of things loved or desired, there being no direct call or purpose to be answered by so doing, and the second, the desire to honour or please someone else by the costliness of the sacrifice. The practice is, in the first case, either private or public, but most frequently, and perhaps most properly, private, while in the latter case the act is commonly, and with greatest advantage, public. Now it cannot but at first appear futile to assert the expediency of self-denial for its own sake, when for so many sakes it is every day necessary to a far greater degree than any of us practice it. But I believe it is just because we do not enough acknowledge or contemplate it as a good in itself, that we are apt to fail in its duties when they become imperative, or to calculate, with some partiality, whether the good proposed to others measures or warrants the amount of grievance to ourselves, 
instead of accepting with gladness the opportunity of sacrifice as a personal advantage. Be this as it may, it is not necessary to insist upon the matter here, since there are always higher and more useful channels of self-sacrifice for those who choose to practice it than any connected with the arts. While in its second branch, that which is especially concerned with the arts, the justice of the feeling is still more doubtful. It depends on our answer to the broad question, can the deity be indeed honoured by the presentation of him of any material objects of value, or by any direction of zeal or wisdom which is not immediately beneficial to men? For observe, it is not now the question whether the fairness and majesty of a building may or may not answer any moral purpose. It is not the result of labour in any sort of which we are speaking, but the bare and mere costliness, the substance and labour and times themselves. Are these, we ask, independently of their result, acceptable offerings to God, and considered by Him as doing Him honour? So long as we refer this question to the decision of feeling, or of conscience, or of reason merely, it will be contradictorily or imperfectly answered. It admits of entire answer only when we have met another and a far different question, whether the Bible be indeed one book or two, and whether the character of God revealed in the Old Testament be other than his character revealed in the New. 4. Now it is a most secure truth that, although the particular ordinances, divinely appointed for special purposes at any given period of man's history, may be, by the same divine authority, abrogated at another, it is impossible that any character of God, appealed to or described in any ordinance, past or present, can ever be changed or understood as changed by the abrogation of that ordinance. God is one and the same, and is pleased or displeased by the same things forever, although one part of his pleasure may be expressed at one time rather than another, and although the mode in which his pleasure is to be consulted may be by him graciously modified to the circumstances of men. Thus, for instance, it was necessary that, in order to the understanding by man of the scheme of redemption, that scheme should be foreshorn from the beginning by the type of bloody sacrifice. But God had no more pleasure in such sacrifice in the time of Moses than he has now. He never accepted as a propitiation for sin any sacrifice but the single one in prospective and that we may not entertain any shadow of doubt on this subject, the worthlessness of all other sacrifice than this is proclaimed at the very time when typical sacrifice was most imperatively demanded. God was a spirit, and could be worshipped only in spirit and in truth, as singly and exclusively, when every day brought its claim of typical and material service or offering, as now when he asks for none but that of the heart. So, therefore, it is a most safe and sure principle that if in the manner of performing any rite at any time circumstances can be traced which we are either told or may legitimately conclude pleased God at that time, those same circumstances will please him at all times in the performance of all rites or offices to which they may be attached in like manner, unless it has been afterwards revealed that for some special purpose it is now his will that such circumstances should be withdrawn. And this argument will have all the more force if it can be shown that such conditions were not essential to the completeness of the right in its human uses and bearings, and only were added to it as being in themselves pleasing to God. 5. Now, was it necessary to the completeness, as a type, of the Levitical sacrifice, 
or to its utility as an explanation of divine purposes, that it should cost anything to the person in whose behalf it was offered. On the contrary, the sacrifice which it foreshowed was to be God's free gift, and the cost of or difficulty of obtaining the sacrificial type could only render that type in a measure obscure and less expressive of the offering which God would in the end provide for all men. Yet this costliness was generally a condition of the acceptableness of the sacrifice. Neither will I offer unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Footnote. 2 Samuel 24.24 Deuteronomy 16.16.17 End of footnote. That costliness, therefore, must be an acceptable condition in all human offerings at all times. For if it was pleasing to God once, it must please Him always, unless directly forbidden by Him afterwards, which it has never been. Again, was it necessary to the typical perfection of the Levitical offering that it should be the best of the flock? Doubtless the spotlessness of the sacrifice renders it more expressive to the Christian mind, but was it because so expressive that it was actually, and in so many words, demanded by God? Not at all. It was demanded by him expressly on the same grounds of which an earthly governor would demand it, as a testimony of respect. Offer it now unto thy governor. Footnote. Malachi 1.8. End of footnote. And the less valuable offering was rejected, not because it did not image Christ, nor fulfill the purposes of sacrifice, but because it indicated a feeling that would grudge the best of its possessions to him who gave them, and because it was a bold dishonoring of God in the sight of man. Whence it may be infallibly concluded that in whatever offerings we may now see reason to present unto God, I say not what these may be, a condition of their acceptableness will be now as it was then that they should be the best of their kind. 6. But farther, was it necessary to the carrying out of the mosaical system that there should be either art or splendor in the form or services of the tabernacle or temple? Was it necessary to the perfection of any one of their typical offices that there should be that hanging of blue and purple and scarlet, those tashes of brass and sockets of silver, that working in cedar and overlaying with gold? One thing at least is evident, that there was a deep and awful danger in it, a danger that the god whom they so worshipped might be associated in the minds of the serfs of Egypt with the gods to whom they had seen similar gifts offered and similar honours paid. The probability in our times of fellowship with the feelings of the idolatrous Romanist is absolutely as nothing compared with the danger to the Israelite of a sympathy with the idolatrist Egyptian. Footnote. With the idolatrist Egyptian. The probability is indeed slight in comparison, but it is a probability nevertheless, and one which is daily on the increase. I trust that I may not be thought to underrate the danger of such sympathy, though I speak lightly of the chance of it. I have confidence in the central religious body of the English and Scottish people as being not only untainted with Romanism, but immovably adverse to it, and however strangely and swiftly the heresy of the Protestant and victory of the papist may seem to be extending among us, I feel assured that there are barriers in the living faith of this nation which neither can overpass. Yet this confidence is only in the ultimate faithfulness of a few, 
not in the security of the nation from the sin and the punishment of partial apostasy. Both have, indeed, in some sort, been committed and suffered already, and in expressing my belief of the close connection of the distress and burden which the mass of the people at present sustain with the encouragement which, in various directions, has been given to the papist, do not let me be called superstitious or irrational. No man was ever more inclined than I, both by natural disposition and by many ties of early association, to a sympathy with the principles and forms of the Romanist Church. And there is much in its discipline which conscientiously, as well as sympathetically, I could love and advocate. But in confessing the strength of affectionate prejudice, surely I vindicate more respect for my firmly expressed belief that the entire doctrine and system of that church is in the fullest sense anti-Christian, that its lying and idolatrous power is the darkest plague that ever held commission to hurt the earth, that all those yearnings for unity and fellowship and common obedience which have been the root of our late heresies are as false in their grounds as fatal in their termination, that we never can have the remotest fellowship with the utterers of that fearful falsehood and live, that we have nothing to look to from them but treacherous hostility, and that exactly in proportion to the sternness of our separation from them will be not only the spiritual but the temporal blessings granted by God to this country. How close has been the correspondence hitherto between the degree of resistance to Romanism marked in our national acts, and the honour with which those acts have been crowned, has been sufficiently proved in a short essay by a writer whose investigations into the influence of religion upon the fate of nations have been singularly earnest and successful. A writer with whom I faithfully and firmly believe that England will never be prosperous again, and that the honour of her arms will be tarnished, and her commerce blighted, and her national character degraded, until the Romanist is expelled from that place which has impiously been conceded to him among her legislators. Whatever be the lot of those to whom error is an inheritance, woe be to the man and the people to whom it is an adoption if england free above all other nations sustained amidst the trials which have covered europe before her eyes with burning and slaughter and enlightened by the fullest knowledge of divine truth shall refuse fidelity to the compact by which those matchless privileges have been given her condemnation will not linger she has already made one step full of danger she has committed the capital error of mistaking that for a purely political question which was a purely religious one her foot already hangs over the edge of the precipice it must be retracted or the empire is but a name and the clouds and darkness which seem to be deepening on all human policy in the gathering tumults of europe and the feverish discontents at home it may be even difficult to discern where the power yet lives to erect the fallen majesty of the constitution once more but there are mighty means in sincerity and if no miracle was ever wrought for the faithless and despairing the country that will help itself will never be left destitute of the help of heaven historical essays by the rev dr crowley eighteen forty two the first of these essays england the fortress of christianity I most earnestly recommend the meditation of those who doubt that a special punishment is inflicted by the deity upon all national crime, and perhaps of all such crime most instantly upon the betrayal of the part of England of the truth and faith with which she has been entrusted.
End of footnote. No speculative, no unproved danger, but proved fatally by their fall during a month's abandonment to their own will, a fall into the most servile idolatry, yet marked by such offerings to their idol as their leader was, in the close sequel, instructed to bid them offer to God. This danger was imminent, perpetual, and of the most awful kind. It was the one against which God made provision, not only by commandments, by threatenings, by promises, the most urgent, repeated, and impressive, but by temporary ordinances of a severity so terrible as almost to dim for a time in the eyes of his people his attribute of mercy. The principal object of every instituted law of that theocracy, of every judgment sent forth in its vindication, was to mark to the people his hatred of idolatry, and hatred written under their advancing steps in the blood of the Canaanite, and more sternly still in the darkness of their own desolation, where the children and the sucklings swooned in the streets of Jerusalem, and the lion tracked his prey in the dust of Samaria. Footnote. Lamentations 2.11. 2 Kings 17.25. End of footnote. Yet against this mortal danger, provision was not made in one way. To man's thoughts the simplest, the most natural, the most effective. By withdrawing from the worship of the divine being, whatever could delight the sense, or shape the imagination, or limit the idea of deity to place. This one way God refused, demanding for himself such honours, and accepting for himself such local dwelling, as had been paid and dedicated to idol gods by heathen worshippers. And for what reason? Was the glory of the tabernacle necessary to set forth or image his divine glory to the minds of his people? What? Purple or scarlet necessary to the people who had seen the great river of Egypt run scarlet to the sea under his condemnation? What? Golden lamp and cherub necessary for those who had seen the fires of heaven falling like a mantle on Mount Sinai, and its golden courts open to receive their mortal lawgiver? What? Silver clasp and fillet, necessary, when they had seen the silver waves of the Red Sea clasp in their arched hollows the corpses of the horse and his rider? Nay, not so. There was but one reason, and that an eternal one, that as the covenant that he made with men was accompanied by some external sign of its continuance, and of his remembrance of it, so the acceptance of that covenant might be marked and signified by use, in some external sign of their love and obedience, and surrender of themselves and theirs to his will, and that their gratitude to him and continual remembrance of him might have at once their expression and their enduring testimony in the presentation to him not only of the firstlings of the herd and fold, not only of the fruits of the earth and the tithe of time, but of all treasures of wisdom and beauty, of the thought that invents and the hand that labours, of wealth of wood and weight of stone, of the strength of iron and of the light of gold. And let us not now lose sight of this broad and unabrogated principle, I might say, incapable of being abrogated, so long as men shall receive earthly gifts from God. Of all that they have, his tithe must be rendered to him, and in so far and in so much he is forgotten, of the skill and of the treasure of the strength and of the mind, of the time and of the toil, offering must be made reverently. And if there be any difference between the Levitical and the Christian offering, 
it is that the latter may be just so much the wider in its range as it is less typical in its meaning and as it is thankful instead of sacrificial there can be no excuse accepted because the deity does not now visibly dwell in his temple if he is invisible it is only through our failing faith nor any excuse because other calls are more immediate or more sacred this ought to be done and not the other left undone yet this objection as frequent as feeble must be more specifically answered seven it has been said it ought always to be said for it is true that a better and more honourable offering is made to our master in ministry to the poor in extending the knowledge of his name in the practice of the virtues by which that name is hallowed than in material presence to his temple assuredly it is so woe to all who think that any other kind or manner of offering may in any wise take the place of these do the people need place to pray and calls to hear his word then it is no time for smoothing pillars or carving pulpits let us have enough first of walls and roofs do the people need teaching from house to house and bread from day to day then they are deacons and ministers we want not architects i insist on this i plead for this but let us examine ourselves and see if this be indeed the reason for our backwardness in the lesser work the question is not between god's house and his poor it is not between god's house and his gospel it is between god's house and ours have we no tessellated colours on our floors no frescoed fancies on our roofs no niched statuary in our corridors no gilded furniture in our chambers no costly stones in our cabinets has even the tithe of these been offered they are or they ought to be the signs that enough has been devoted to the great purposes of human stewardship and that there remains to us what we can spend in luxury but there is a greater and prouder luxury than this selfish one that of bringing a portion of such things as these into sacred service and presenting them for a memorial footnote numbers thirty one fifty four psalm seventy six eleven End of footnote. that our pleasure as well as our toil has been hallowed by the remembrance of him who gave both the strength and the reward and until this has been done i do not see how such possessions can be retained in happiness i do not understand the feeling which would arch our own gates and pave our own thresholds and leave the church with its narrow door and foot-worn sill the feeling which enriches our own chambers with all manner of costliness and endures the bare wall and mean compass of the temple there is seldom even so severe a choice to be made seldom so much self-denial to be exercised there are isolated cases in which men's happiness and mental activity depend upon a certain degree of luxury in their houses but then this is true luxury felt and tasted and profited by in the plurality of instances nothing of the kind is attempted nor can be enjoyed men's average resources cannot reach it and that which they can reach gives them no pleasure and might be spared it will be seen in the course of the following chapters that i am no advocate for meanness of private habitation i would fain introduce into it all magnificence care and beauty where they are possible 
but I would not have that useless expense in unnoticed fineries or formalities, cornices of ceilings and graining of doors, and fringing of curtains, and thousands such, things which have become foolishly and apathetically habitual, things on whose common appliance hang whole trades, to which there never yet belonged the blessing of giving one ray of real pleasure, or becoming of the remotest or most contemptible use. Things which cause half the expense of life, and destroy more than half its comfort, manliness, respectability, freshness, and facility. I speak from experience. I know what it is to live in a cottage with a deal floor and roof, and a hearth of mica slate, and I know it to be in many respects healthier and happier than living between a turkey carpet and gilded ceiling, beside a steel grate and polished fender. I do not say that such things have not their place in propriety, but I say this emphatically, that the tenth part of the expense which is sacrificed to domestic vanities, if not absolutely and meaninglessly lost in domestic discomforts and encumbrances, would, if collectively offered and wisely employed, build a marble church for every town in England, such a church as it should be a joy and a blessing even to pass near in our daily ways and walks, and as it would bring the light into the eyes to see from afar, lifting its fair height above the purple crowd of humble roofs. 8. I have said for every town, I do not want a marble church for every village. Nay, I do not want marble churches at all for their own sake, but for the sake of the spirit that would build them. The church has no need of any visible splendors. Her power is independent of them. Her purity is in some degree opposed to them. The simplicity of a pastoral sanctuary is lovelier than the majesty of an urban temple, and it may be more than questioned whether, to the people, such majesty has ever been the source of any increase of effective piety. But to the builders it has been and must ever be. It is not the church we want, but the sacrifice, not the emotion of admiration, but the act of adoration, not the gift, but the giving. Footnote. Not the gift, but the giving. Much attention has lately been directed to the subject of religious art, and we are now in possession of all kinds of interpretations and classifications of it, and of the leading facts of its history. But the greatest question of all connected with it remains entirely unanswered. What good did it do to real religion? There is no subject into which I should so much rejoice to see a serious and conscientious inquiry instituted as this, an inquiry neither undertaken in artistical enthusiasm nor in monkish sympathy, but dogged, merciless, and fearless. I love the religious art of Italy as well as most men, but there is a wide difference between loving it as a manifestation of individual feeling and looking to it as an instrument of popular benefit. I have not knowledge enough to form even the shadow of an opinion on this latter point, and I should be most grateful to any one who would put it in my power to do so. There are, as it seems to me, three distinct questions to be considered. The first, what has been the effect of external splendor on the genuineness and earnestness of Christian worship? The second, what the use of pictorial or sculptural representation in the communication of Christian historical knowledge, or excitement of affectionate imagination? The third, what the influence of the practice of religious art on the life of the artist? In answering these inquiries, 
we should have to consider separately every collateral influence and circumstance, and, by a most subtle analysis, to eliminate the real effect of art from the effects and the abuses with which it was associated. This could be done only by a Christian, not a man who would fall in love with a sweet colour or sweet expression, but who would look for true faith and consistent life as the object of all. It never has been done yet, and the question remains a subject of vain and endless contention between parties of opposite prejudices and temperaments. End of footnote. And see how much more charity the full understanding of this might admit among classes of men of naturally opposite feelings, and how much more nobleness in the work. There is no need to offend by importunate self-proclaiming splendor. Your gift may be given in an unpresuming way. Cut one or two shafts out of a porphyry whose preciousness those only would know who would desire it to be so used. At another month's labor to the undercutting of a few capitals, whose delicacy will not be seen nor loved by one beholder of ten thousand. See that the simplest masonry of the edifice be perfect and substantial. And to those who regard such things, their witness shall be clear and impressive. To those who regard them not, all will at least be inoffensive. But do not think the feeling itself a folly, or the act itself useless. Of what use was that dearly bought water of the well of Bethlehem, with which the king of Israel slaked the dust of Adullam? Yet was not thus better than if he had drunk it? Of what use was that passionate act of Christian sacrifice, against which, first uttered by the false tongue, the very objection we would now conquer took a solemn tone forever? Footnote. John 12.5. End footnote. So also let us not ask of what use our offering is to the church. It is at least better for us than if it had been retained for ourselves. It may be better for others also. There is at any rate a chance of this, though we must always fearfully and widely shun the thought that the magnificence of the temple can materially add to the efficiency of the worship or to the power of the ministry. Whatever we do or whatever we offer, let it not interfere with the simplicity of the one, or abate as if replacing the zeal of the other. That is the abuse and fallacy of Romanism, by which the true spirit of Christian offering is directly contradicted. The treatment of the papist temple is eminently exhibitory. It is surface work throughout, and the danger and evil of their church decoration lie not in its reality, not in the true wealth and art of it, of which the lower people are never cognizant, but in its tinsel and glitter, in the gilding of the shrine and painting of the image, in embroidery of dingy robes and crowding of imitated gems, all this being frequently thrust forward to the concealment of what is really good and great in their buildings. Footnote. To the concealment of what is really good or great. I have often been surprised at the supposition that Romanism, in its present condition, could either patronize art or profit by it. The noble painted windows of St. Maclou at Rouen and many other churches in France are entirely blocked up behind the altars by the erection of huge gilded wooden sunbeams with interspersed cherubs. End of footnote. Of an offering of gratitude which is neither to be exhibited nor rewarded, which is neither to win praise nor purchase salvation, the Romanist as such has no conception. End of chapter 1, part 1.
Recording by Todd Albrick.